0: Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Christian. I'm the lead pastor here at the Grove, and we are glad, as Campbell and Walter, I'm sure, have all said, we're glad you guys are with us today. We've been looking at what's known as the Great Commission. And just as a way of review, this is week three. So in week one, we went back a little farther than you typically do when you're looking at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew and what we know as this Great Commission. We, we talked about the fuel for the mission, which is worship. If we don't understand who God is, then mission on behalf of Him really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Last week, we said, we looked at the idea of freedom. And and how God's love really is what makes the mission for us, right? It's a mission that that he's called his people to. But if we don't understand how God interacts with us and the fact that it's a mission given to us despite our rebellion against him, um, then, again, we'll miss it. But as we looked at last week, God's grace, the, the love that we receive through Jesus Christ, means that it's really a mission for all of us. And we're going to continue to look at that a little bit. What now is a... Uh, in high school. I was late in high school my junior year, and that's when uh, really I came to understand what it meant to be a Christ follower. And um, so 1994, 1995, in that time, began to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus and and walk with Him. And and at that time, through some different events, I became captivated by this idea of the Great Commission. Um, had some different opportunities where People were teaching about it, and, and at that point in my life, I was really grateful to Jesus because of what he'd done in, in saving me and in bringing me to himself, and it seemed like this thing that people called the Great Commission was a task, and you know, here I am moving towards the end of high school and into to college time when you're trying to figure out what your life's going to be about. It seemed to me that this was a task worth giving my life to. Um, everybody needed to know about him. That—that that was my prayer. I didn't know how to pray, really. I would spend nights just praying. God, just save everybody. I don't know. Do whatever you you do. Whatever you've done for me, save everybody. I was captivated, captivated by the Great Commission. But in that time, and and even today, there have always been obstacles to people believing that that what we're talking about here is actually good news, that it's actually something worth sharing with others. It's actually something that should be shared with others. When I was you know, mid-90s at that time, as we were thinking about this, we'd wrestle with, with questions, intellectual questions like, what about dinosaurs, right? If you read the Bible, where, where do the dinosaurs fit into this whole thing? Were there dinosaurs on the ark? How does that whole thing work, right? And if you didn't think about that, now you've got a problem I just created for you, okay? There was questions, intellectual questions like that. There were, there were moral questions. Again, when I was a high schooler, the, the key moral question was, well, what, what about sex and and before marriage, outside of marriage, in marriage? That that was this major question. And at that time, I would say, if I had to summarize it, the outsider view of Christianity was, well, if, if again, if I'm an outsider, then this is just, you know, it's, it's kind of stupid. I mean, nice and all, but... This is, this is sort of stupid, that you would right, either think about things like the dinosaurs or, or think that there's another way to explain some of this stuff, or, or that you would have any kind of governor on how you think about sexuality. At that time, it was just, hey, this is, this is kind of stupid. Today, the questions have changed a bit, right? Th- these days, they're, they're slightly new questions. There's a question, right, what, what is a woman? That became a really big, important question recently. We're asking that kind of question. Uh, again, an intellectual question. What is a woman? And there's still more moral questions, but it's now questions like, who can be married? Right? Like, who, who is this actually for? We're continuing to ask important questions. But now I would say the outsider view, if, if you are not a part of this thing, as you look at these questions and you see how Christians answer these questions, Christians who, who believe God's word, Right? It, it, if if we look at how they answer the questions now, the outsider view is Christianity is not just stupid; it's actually bad. That, that wasn't the case. It used to be. Well, it's got something to, maybe to offer, but it's kind of stupid, right? It's just I mean, yeah, whatever. But now the actual opinion, the prevailing opinion, is this is this is bad. This is unhelpful for our world and for our culture. And so you go back even further, right, go back maybe decades before that, into the 50s and 60s, and at that time, there was sort of the prevailing idea that Christianity was a little bit like, I borrowed this comparison from somebody else, but the idea was that Christianity was a little bit like cod liver oil. If you've ever had that, you know what I'm talking about. I fortunately have not, but, but I've seen it, right? Again, a Christmas story, maybe you saw at some point somebody's had to, to drink cod liver oil. But, but at that point, uh, what, what you understand about cod liver oil is it tastes awful. But people used to, to drink this stuff because they thought it might be helpful. Okay? Like, so so they take their cod liver oil because it, it's despicable, tastes nasty, but you know, it probably helps you. And so you go back many decades, and that was kind of the opinion. Yeah, Christianity, there's all these things that don't taste so good, aren't, aren't, really, aren't things I would like, but, you know, there, there's something that it contributes. But today, the prevailing thought is not that I'm drinking something that tastes bad but might be good for me. Now the prevailing thought is if you imbibe that, if you think that, if you believe that, you're actually taking in something that is toxic, something that's destructive. So so there's there's a shift that's taking place. Now, there's not anything new under the sun. There's been people who have disagreed and and thought poorly of Christianity for a long, long time. But the result is that now more than ever, I think the question that's really relevant for us, if you're here, and again, you may be here going, and and you're agreeing with some of the things that I've said on the negative of Christianity, that's okay. We're glad you're here, okay? Because I hope you would, would at least think about some of the things I'll say today. But for those who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with Jesus and, and Christianity, I, I, you think of this in some favorable way, the really key question then, again, is can we really talk about this? Is this actually something that I can not, not just believe personally, maybe try to act upon personally, but does it have to be something that is solely private? Is it something that I can actually address with other people in my working and living and, you know, all all the things that I do? This is a big question, and that's what I want to get at today. So today we're going to focus in on what is the Great Commission really all about? what, What are we actually talking about here? And only if we do that, only if we really understand what it is, do we have a chance to make it the priority it needs to be, okay? So you can, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 28. If you don't have one, our gift to you, there's one in front of you. You can flip that open or use it today, you'll see Matthew 28, where we're headed, uh, is there on page 900. Okay, so as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background. We've been talking about the Great Commission, but I want to go back. Just a few days before this meeting on the mountain, Jesus and his his disciples, just a few days before that, Jesus was on trial. Okay, he's on trial. Matthew 26, this is part of, well, I'll take you just jump into this trial, and, and part of that, that trial, Matthew 26, verse 63 He's on trial, and the high priest is the one trying him. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's been making some claims, and they want to know definitively, are you the Son of God? And Jesus replies, he says, you've said it, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you. If you were on trial, you kind of go, well, that's a weird way to answer that. A yes or no will suffice. But what Jesus just does there, what what we find if we continue on is the the high priest, at that point, he loses it. And the the people there in that trial, they lose it because, and, and this becomes the turning point in this trial against Jesus. Because after this, he's taken to the Roman authorities to be killed on the charge of blasphemy. And why is that? Well, it's because what he's just done, maybe foreign to our ears, but what he's just done is quoted a prophecy from 500 years earlier. Prophet Daniel. And see, in the vision of Daniel 7, okay, this comes from Daniel 7. We'll turn there in here in a second. But in that vision, Daniel is given a view into a heavenly courtroom, God gives him this view into a heavenly courtroom where God himself, who is called the Ancient of Days, presides and makes judgments, okay? So God is this cosmic judge. That's this image that God gives Daniel. He's called the Ancient of Days, and he makes these judgments, and in that court, the enemies of God are put on trial, and the verdict is rendered against them, and they are destroyed. Okay, that's what happens in the big picture of this vision that Daniel is given. But in that trial, there's another judgment, judgment that is rendered, and that's what Jesus is quoting for. I want us to read it. Daniel 7, verse 13. He says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man, that's a key word we'll come back to, like one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now You should have picked up on there, there's some things that ring similar to what Jesus said there in Matthew 26. But what's the judgment? that that happens in this part of Daniel's vision. The judgment is that there is one who is the true king. This comes in the midst of God's people being exiled into Babylon, where there's this king who thinks he's the ruler of everything. And so there's this vision that says, no, 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 there is one who is the true king. And here's Jesus' claim. There in that courtroom, before the high priest and many others, Jesus' claim is that whatever their verdict He is that one true king that Daniel was told about. And that's why they are hacked. So much so that that's what leads to his death. And that's the death that then he overcomes in being resurrected. And now here we are on the mount just a few days later. And so there's two key terms I mentioned, or I mentioned one, but two key terms that show up there in Daniel 7, and they feature prominently in Matthew's gospel. One was son of man. 80 times in the New Testament, there's a reference to, or really more than that, but 80 verses in the New Testament, a reference to the Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite term for himself, because he's constantly hearkening back. He's saying, look, if you guys would pay good attention to your Bibles, Old Testament, you'd know I'm the one that that was talking about. And so again and again and again, he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. But then there's another term, and that is dominion, or kingdom a kingdom is just a king's dominion a king's domain so there's this reference there in daniel 7 to to kingdom and dominion and we'll talk more about that in a bit but 47 verses in just the gospel of matthew in 21 of 28 chapters there is explicit references to the kingdom the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came and he's talking about himself as the son of man and he's talking about his mission being to help people understand that the kingdom of heaven is here. What he's saying is, I'm the king and I'm bringing a kingdom. So, with that in mind, let's go back to Matthew 28 and we'll get into what we know as the actual commission. Okay, we've we've finally got here. Here we are, three weeks in. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says this, he came near to them and he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and remember I'm with you always to the end of the age. So here's what I want us to understand. I want us to just see what is the great commission. The first thing I want you to know is the great commission is the king's edict. Okay? It is the king's edict. A commission, we, we, what we've come to call a commission, is simply a passing on of authority. It, it, it's the authority to act for or in behalf of or in place of another so this is a, an edict or a, a commission. It, it is the passing on of authority. That's the thing that I really want us to, to see today. This is the king's edict. I, I, when I was in eighth grade, we took a trip. I was living in Tennessee. We took a trip uh, to the Washington, to Washington, D.C., right, that, your eighth grade, go to, that, back in the day, that's what you did, and so we got in a van, or not a van, it was like a bus, it was nice, um, you just don't use the restroom on those things, and then, and so we got in the bus, and we, we drove through Tennessee, and up into Washington, D.C., and we got to see all kinds of cool things, I loved getting to go there, um, we were supposed to go to the tomb of the unknown soldier, but the weather was bad, and we weren't able to go, okay, now the, sol- the, the guards that were there, guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier, they were there, because they, they'd ever leave, um, but but we didn't get to go But I, I heard a story recently about what happens, okay, so I haven't ever seen this in person I'm sure I can watch a YouTube video, but um, but back then you can do that, okay, but but here's what happens at the tomb of the unknown soldier Like I said, there, there's always a guard there, but there is this position. There's this time where they change the guard and, and when during that time during the changing of the guard the retiring sentinel he says, okay, the one that's, that's about to go off duty, he says to the, the relieving sentinel, the one that's coming on duty, he says these words, post and orders remain as directed. He's, given, he's been given a post and orders, and he says those remain as directed, and the, the relieving sentinel in response says, orders acknowledged. That's, that's the ceremony. That's what takes place. They, they know there's an edict. There's a commission that has taken place, And those orders are unchanged, but there's a passing of authority. So that commission is to act on behalf of the one who came before. It's important that we recognize this. This is the king's edict. I know it's somewhat, it's probably pastorally um, cliche, but this is not the great suggestion. It's not the great recommendation it's not the great idea. This is the Great Commission. It is the King's Edict. And the Great Commission is the King's Edict to create a culture. Okay. The Commission, the command, is to create a culture. There, there's more to that, but I, I want to start there. It's to create a culture. It is not simply about dispensing information. We talk about helping others know about who Jesus is and what is Christianity and all that. We're not just talking about passing along some information. We're not just talking about doing charitable works, and we're not talking about just gathering a bunch of people together. Right? We're, we're just so happy you're here. Just as long as you're here, we, we've done our. No, those those are a part of some of the things that could go into this, but it's so much more. Jesus intends that we create a culture. Pastor author Tim Keller describes culture as a collective heart. And this is important, I think this is really helpful, because we talk about here having a collective heart, our heart attitudes. That is, what is at the core of how we want to approach church life? How do we want to approach life together? Attitudes are just angles of approach. And a heart is not just that thing beating in your chest, but your heart is, what's at the core? What's at the center? It's the control center of our lives. In Keller's words, it's the seat of our fundamental commitments and trusts. And therefore, again, it is the control center of the whole life. And so when you talk about that collectively, you say a collective heart or a culture, it is a set of commanding commitments held and shared by a community of people, okay? A set of commanding commitments. When we talk about a culture, you're talking about what is this people, whether it's church or, or it's this community or it's this country or it's another country or community. What we're talking about is what is the set of, of Commitments, commanding commitments that are shared by us. What are the things that we we agree on, that we do together? And last week I said that the heart of God's mission is freedom. That God's heart at the center of what he's wanting to do is to set us free. And that to be a part of this commission is to understand you are set free and then learning to live free. And that that really does, again, summarize what we're going to look at today. But what God has, what, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28 is, I want you to create a culture. I want you to create a collective heart, a, a group of people who share certain commanding commitments. And at the core of that is that there would be a culture that is made up of disciples. Okay, that's the key word here, made up of disciples. That's not just a churchy word. Okay, that's not just, something. I mean, we, we use it. Everybody wants to talk about disciples, discipleship, that kind of thing. But, but this is, the reason it becomes this kind of churchy, cliche thing is because this is what Jesus cared about. In fact, when you look at this, okay, we, we tend to look at it and we go, oh, what did Jesus say to do? He said, go. And we, we, we focus on go. And so some of you, your experience with the Great Commission is guilt. We start talking about the Great Commission, you go, oh, I'm not going somewhere in your mind i didn't go to the deepest darkest whatever place and so therefore i'm not really this isn't really for me because the command is just to go actually the command the word like if we go back into how jesus says this the command is disciple that's that's the, it does it, not even make it's just disciple it's it's that's the verb disciple is what jesus says we, it's okay to say, make disciples. But he says, make disciples. He says, and the way that's going to happen, three things. And it starts with the going. Okay? But, but before we get there, right, what is a disciple? In these days, it would be appropriate to say a follower. A disciple was somebody who followed a teacher. It was a learner. Today we use the word follower, right? <laughs> and it, it loses a little bit of its force. Because now, to be a follower means, at some point, I had some passing interest in this thing, right? Like, I follow the McDonald's down the street, right? Like, on on my social media. Like, I had some passing interest. I wanted a coupon. Like, whatever the thing was, like, that's what we mean by follow today. I can have followers. It just means, at some point, I was interested in what you were doing. But here, to be a disciple, to be a follower, is to be one who is committed to somebody else committed to learning from them. And it's out of that commitment that you would grow, that, you would, that your life would be transformed. So then we go, well, okay, we're sold to a disciple. Well How do we know a disciple is made? In other words, what characterizes, how, how do we know when we've obeyed this? How do we know we've done this? And that's a key question. And really, that's what Jesus answers in the other things he says, okay? He says disciple, but he's explaining how we're to do that. So three things. One, he starts out and he says, disciple, therefore, going to all peoples. So that's the first thing. Going to all peoples. Now, there's two parts to this. One, that word go has to do with this whole new life orientation. What Jesus is saying is, all authority has been on heaven and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, disciple. Go to all peoples. Go. In other words, your life then is oriented around my authority and what I'm telling you to do. It's a whole new way of living, whole new way of thinking is what he has in mind for them. It's an ongoing going. It it could involve, and for many of us, and we celebrate those for whom it does involve packing up and going to a whole new land. May not make light of. I mean that that is a, a part of this. But it's an extension of the first thing, which is just, hey, orient your life around this thing. And what you need to know is that this thing your life is oriented around, it's for all the peoples. It's for every culture on this planet. And see, what Jesus is doing is saying, look, I want you to make disciples. And these are disciples, you and the disciples you make are those who declare a new story. It's the first part of this. You declare a new story. That's what disciples do. We have a new story. I want to take you back to Jesus' lineage. Matthew 1.1, the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, he opens like this, he says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now anyway, He mentions two people. He says, look, I want you to know, I want to, I'm going to connect this, this Jesus. He goes back to, to David and to Abraham. And he's going to show how his this is his family line. But, but what do we find in those two men in particular, son of David, 2 Samuel 7, 16, there's this promise made to David. God says to him, Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And so now here comes Jesus, the son of David, the one who was going to, excuse me, was going to have a son on the throne. Forever. He's also a son of Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, go back even farther. God says to Abraham, I will bless those, at this point he's just Abram, um, but he says to him, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm, you're going to be, your family is going to be a family out of which the blessing of all the peoples, all the nations will take place. And in fact, we're told later in the New Testament, Galatians 3.8, now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So this is shorthand for the good news of what Jesus is gonna do. That's what, that's what the scriptures tell us. Is that the, the shorthand for, this is what Jesus is gonna do is, all the nations will be blessed. And so this command to go, all, go, and all the peoples are going to be changed by this is a recognition that there is this good news of victory. There is one who is the king forever, and his kingdom is going to be a blessing to all the nations. That's a different story. And, and that's the story, that's the, the good news that is the basis of this whole new culture that transcends every culture. It doesn't mean that the things that come from our, our other cultures are all bad. It just means that they're all submissive to this grander culture, this grander story. That's what makes up a culture. When you talk about what are we, what are we committed to and what do we think, it always starts with, well, how do we think this world got here? How, how do we think it's going? Where do we think it, What do we think is important? And Jesus says, I've come to give you a new story. And you are to declare this whole new story, that your life is reoriented. And then as people believe, disciples, as they believe, then he says the second thing, baptizing with all authority. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's that word again, authority. Which tells us that these disciples not only declare a new story, they also are to depict a new allegiance. You and I, we, as Christ followers, we are to depict a new allegiance. We've been welcomed into a new family, which is the king's domain. It's the kingdom. When we're brought into the king's domain, we're here to depict that our allegiance has shifted. It doesn't mean I can't be a citizen of the United States. It just means that I'm a citizen here. But my true and best citizenship, my ultimate citizenship is in heaven. It's a whole new allegiance. And so we, we agree, we understand these things. When the Psalms talk about it chapter 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 2, verse 10, we're told, Now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. This is a command to kings. Saying, look, kings, I want you to understand. There's one who is the king of kings. And, and, and notice what happens when we recognize who the king is. You judges of the earth, serve the Lord, Lord with reverential awe and rejoice. There's joy in following the king. Same thing we find in Psalm 47. Except now it's not just to the kings of the earth, it's to the peoples of the earth. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a jubilant cry, for the Lord, the Most High, is awe-inspiring. He's a great king over the whole earth. Once again, when we recognize that Jesus is the king, there's joy. Because there's no better king. There's no better kingdom. And to be disciples is to recognize that grand story that transcends every other story. And then part of how we then demonstrate that is that we we depict that through baptism. Baptism is, is us publicly saying, look, my allegiance has shifted. Jesus has done that. It doesn't save me. It, d- it just says, Jesus, he saved me. That's the story. He's come. He's made a way for me to be reconciled to my God. He's been made a way for me to be brought into the family of God. And now I'm going to declare that publicly. I'm going to depict that. And I'm going to follow Jesus in being buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. So we depict a new allegiance as his followers. And then finally, we're told to teach all Jesus commanded. The book of Matthew, the whole book, is designed. Okay, Matthew, he's brilliant. And, and with God's help, I mean, God's telling him to do this and made him able to do it. But the book of Matthew is designed to show that Jesus is the new and better Moses. There's five sections in the book of Matthew. And each section ends with teaching in order to, to help make a comparison, what Matthew's doing is saying, you know what? There were those five books in the law of Moses, the, what we know as the Torah. Well, here, here's five new books. Here's five new sections of teaching because Jesus is the new and better Moses. This is cool stuff that we don't have time to get into all of it, okay? But, but that's what Matthew's trying to do. And, and what, what he's then saying is that Jesus has come to offer a new and better way of living. I want you to see this. This is what Jesus says. This is just one of those sections. Matthew 7. Early in this section, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And We're going to skip down. I'm I'm sorry, guys. We're going to skip down. I want you to come. He then tells a story about this. He says, verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. The third thing here Jesus says is you're going to make disciples. And these disciples, they're going to declare a new story. And they're going to depict a new allegiance. And then finally, they're going to demonstrate a whole new way of living. And notice what he says here teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Notice that the, the, the commission is not to tell them everything I told you. He doesn't say tell them everything. He says teach them everything. You go, oh yeah, I know how teaching works. I sit there and you tell me some stuff and then, then I try to take some notes maybe or I do some work and, and then I show up for a test and then I forget everything you told me and then I go to the next thing. That's how teaching works, right? Like, that, that's the way that's all supposed to go. That's not what he says. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Command. There's that word again. You just, you tell me to do something, and, and you just bark orders, and then I go try to do the orders, and then you get mad because I didn't do it the right way. But here's the deal. The best commanders don't just bark orders. Like actual commanders people who have respect in in areas where they use terms like the commander, they don't just bark orders. They give direction based on previous training. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, I I trained you. And now I want you to take all that training and I want you to go train others the way I trained you. The model is Jesus, the commander and teacher. And he says, I want you to teach them what? To obey. So what's a disciple? A disciple. It's not somebody who ascribes to a set of doctrines. It's not one who just shows up to a specific place. Again, those things have their place. But a disciple is one who has been trained to obey Jesus in everything. Not merely told to obey, and and not yet necessarily obeying everything. Okay, I want you to get this. He says, I want you to train them to obey everything I've commanded you. But there's a period where we don't get it all. The the key nugget here, the thing that makes a disciple a disciple is that they have been trained that their life in Christ now means following the king. And if we talk about life in Christ, if we talk about being a Christian as, well, I I believed something, I prayed something one time, and then I went about my business, and now I know that someday he'll show up, And then I'll be able to come and give him my ticket. And he'll go, oh, yeah, you got a ticket? Okay, great. And in the meantime, we don't really need to talk to each other or do much with each other. If that's our approach to this, we have missed it. What Jesus is saying is, no, when you recognize that I'm the king, then you know that at the core of this life, this life that brings joy to to all the kings and the life that brings joy to the peoples of the earth is a life of obedience to this good and great king. So we know that to believe the true and better story and to swear allegiance to the true king and be made alive in his kingdom is to be one who delights to do what he says. Once you see this in action, Acts 14, verse 21, it says, this is after, later. It says, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? Encouraging words. All right. Now, what you understand, right? It says they made disciples. Now, we know if you keep reading the New Testament, you know there are all kinds of these, these kinds of stories. Disciples were made, churches were planted, and then there's these letters from this guy Paul who writes to people and goes, hey... Yeah, yeah, no, that's not how we do that. Yeah, y'all are messed up. Let me tell you how to get back on track. I mean, it's just time and again. Now, he starts out saying, hey, I love you. (laughs) And he ends saying, I still love you. But in the middle, he's saying, yeah, y'all are messed up. Like, you need to know some things. You need to do this differently. So they were disciples, not because they had it all figured out but because they had learned that the seed of their discipleship was, oh yeah, if I belong to the king, I walk with the king and I obey him. That's that's the thing. And I want to just say something here. This only works, again, this only works if the first two ingredients are there. When I was in college, there were a group of guys on campus, zealous for the Great Commission. They wore t-shirts. It wasn't this exact t-shirt, but it said they walked around in t-shirts like this. Again, I, and some of these were my friends. I, I think they, they walk with the Lord, but, but here's the problem. To just walk around telling people, obey Jesus, misses what has to come first, which is, hey, wait, there's a king. There's a better story. And it's a story that, of not your goodness, but of his. It's a story of his rescuing you that you can't rescue yourself. And, and, and then there's this other part, which is that you need to be, uh, he needs to be your king. And if he's not the king to tell, I mean, I can tell you obey him, but it doesn't work that way. The trouble is we often stop at those first two. We, we stop before obey Jesus. We just go, yeah, yeah, hey, you need to be saved. And, you, and, and come on, come get baptized and we'll, we'll have something on a number roll somewhere. And yeah, I know Jesus said some stuff. Do your best. I don't know. missed the boat there. Again, it doesn't mean you obey perfectly, but you know that an obedience is flourishing. And when you disobey, you welcome God's discipline because you know that he loves you. Last thing on this. How do we learn to obey? I don't want you to miss this. Jesus said the way you would learn to obey is that you would be trained by other disciples. God could have just go, hey, I'm gonna just, just going to zap some stuff into you. You go off and do your own thing, and eventually we'll, we'll all meet back up. He doesn't do that. He says, no, 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 you're going to go teach them, train them the way I trained you, and then they're going to be doing the same thing. That's the way this thing works. You put all of that together, here's the implication. If you say, my relationship with Jesus is private, or it's only private, if you say, I shouldn't have to listen to anybody else about my life, now there's no doubt that abuses happen, and they are abominable to the Lord, but if you delight in being a rebel, you are probably not a disciple. It just, Jesus just doesn't, he's the king, and he doesn't leave that open for you to just go off doing whatever it is you want and say, oh, no, no, Jesus, he doesn't, care. me and him, we, we be mates. It's cool. And so what? Two things, I'm already late. Two things. First thing, let go of a compartmentalized view of faith and embrace the whole life call of God. That's the implication of this commission. Embrace the whole life call of God's kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. I'm going to skip some other stuff. I just, I just want to hit this and say, Understand, the life that's laid out for you is an all-of-life kind of thing. God, God, when, when we understand who the king is and we follow him, there's joy found there we trust him in all things we find oh this is what that life is really all about and that's what he wants for his disciples that's the kind of culture that he wants created where we see everything all the stuff we do which is why this year we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this series we're gonna start a series on money and and then we're gonna talk about our words and we're gonna get to easter we're gonna celebrate jesus is alive we're gonna talk about marriage and relationships And then we're going to look at rest and what that really is all about. We're going to look at discipleship in the lives of other biblical saints. And then we're going to get into the fall, which is way far away. And we're going to talk about what is leadership in the church really all about as we go through the book of 1 Timothy. Jesus' last command must be our first priority, and it involves understanding that all of life is impacted by him being the king. Last thing, be emboldened not embarrassed to live and share your faith. I know it's a weird time. It's hard to get our hands around and head around how do we talk about this and how what do we say about that? Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. What this means is that this is his world. It doesn't matter What the high priest thinks, it doesn't matter what the high priests of our culture say. This is Jesus' world. Now, Jesus doesn't say, go out and be a jerk. But this is his world. It's his ways. We've got to decide, am I embarrassed by him? Or does he make me bold to live for him? And what he tells us, Matthew 25, 34, he tells a story. He says at the end, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's the king, and he wants to share the kingdom with you. He says it in Luke. Seek his kingdom. It's connected back to what we saw in Matthew 6. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock. Because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Let's not be embarrassed by that. Our Father, our King, has a kingdom to give us. May we be bold in understanding it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have saved us, given us new life given us a new allegiance. And you've given us a new way of living. I pray that you would work in us and through us to create the kind of culture that you intend. To be a people whose heart together, whose commitments are to love and honor you in every part of our lives. Would you guide us and lead us for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day.